The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. No temple, the holy city, the 42 months. And then I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,200 years. Sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days that they prophesy. And they had power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottom of the sea will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city where it symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord is crucified. Three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who go on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and extend presents because these two prophets have been a torment for those who dwell on the earth. And after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud and the enemy watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and the tent of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe. Start somewhere more recently, on June 4, 1989, Tiananmen Square, China. It's not just in Chinese history, but in world history. Following weeks of protests about the economy and social security and, and rising inflation and political 
production that drew up to a million people at a time to Kansas Square. The Chinese government had had sending more than 300,000 troops to Beijing before the protest. On June 4, 1989, these troops opened fire on protesters. These troops were accompanied by tanks, well-sighted tanks. That's not fair, is it? How many were killed? From there, between several hundred to several thousand protesters were killed that day and then wounded. The next day, however, something happened that has led to what is considered one of the most iconic pictures of all You see, at the, the northeast edge of Tiananmen Square, shortly after midday, Tank Man, as he's come to be known, wearing a, a white shirt, black trousers, and holding shopping bags. Stood in the middle of the wide avenue, directly in the path of the oncoming tanks. And as the tanks came to a stop, the man gestured at them, uh, causing the lead tank to attempt to, to drive home. However, each time the tank went to move, the man stepped in the same direction in a show of non-violent After repeatedly attempting to go around him, the lead tank ended up turning off his As did the tanks. Now, eventually this man was pulled away by two people dressed in blue. To this day, no one is quite sure whether these were police or concerned protesters. To this day, no one knows who this man was or what happened to him, despite many theories. But to this day, this man continues to stand as a symbol of resistance and of hope of the few against the many, of the power of the small in the face of the great, of the power of the weak against the Revelation chapter 11 is all about the power of the small in the face of the great, of the power of the weak against the strong, of the power of God's people against those who oppose him and his message. Friends, first so that we can have a bit more of an idea of what's going on in chapter 11, I thought it would be helpful just to go back and the effect on what's going on in chapters 1 to 10 of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, the, the Apostle John goes into the world of the spirits, the world of heaven, and views this earthly world from that perspective, from that vantage point. And the book basically just contains two visions. The first vision is found in chapter 1 and describes the grim state of the seven churches which have been written to by Jesus in chapters 2 and 3. The second vision, which is the bulk of the book, is found in chapters 4 to 20 and relates to the awesome journey that the people of God are on before they 
for the New Jerusalem distance on Romans chapter 21 to 23. That's the passage. Now, the book of Revelation tends to find people at sort of either one of two extremes. Either there's some you know, fascinated by it, spend lots of time and studying it and trying to work out all the details. Or on the other end of the scale, it just sort of gets put in the, the too hard basket and just ignore it. And again, many different interpretations are given for the passage, which we're not looking at this morning. We really want to just sort of focus on chapter 11. But the way I'm sort of approaching the book and commend it to you is to interpret the book of Revelation in line of the particular genre or type of literature it's written. That is to be aware, when you read the Bible, there are different types of literature. Not all the same. We have narrative or story. David and Goliath. Jesus dealing with Nathan. We have prophecy. We have wisdom literature like Job or Ecclesiastes. We have gospel, which is our own taboo. We have epistles, letters. We have what's called apocalyptic literature. There are different types of literature in and as we're interpreting the Bible, each of those types of literature has different rules for interpreting. We just don't have a flat reading of the Bible. So we're always interpreting the Bible literally, but in the light of the particular genre or literature that it is, it's just a general religious genre. Now, there are a number of books or parts of books or even chapters in the Bible that fall under this apocalyptic of literature, always see the revelation, but you've got Daniel chapter 7 to 12. You've got, towards the end of the Old Testament, a book called Zephaniah, or even parts of the Gospels. So you've got Mark chapter 13, or the equivalent, Luke chapter 21, we usually talk about this one in Jerusalem as well. Um, they sort of fall into this category of apocalyptic literature. But of course, the book of Revelation is how does it mean, or what might it mean anyway, to approach Revelation with this view, understanding it's written with this particular literature? Well, a couple of things I would suggest. Uh, one is, taking this view means we don't view the book chronologically. That is, if you read, say, the Gospel of Matthew, starts off beginning with his ministry, then his apprentice, his life, and Revelation isn't written like that way. Now, we don't view many of the events happening in Revelation happening chronologically, but it's a series of cycles. Uh, we see episodes that show the interaction of the earthly reality and the heavenly reality between the world of the flesh and the spirit. Both these worlds are happening simultaneously. And there are lots of things going on, say, in chapters 6 and 7, that are at the same time going on as what's happening in chapters 9 and 10 and chapter 12 and 13. They're all sort of mixed up together, in a sense. Now, uh, if you read through Revelation, often you see these series of sevens, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and which number seven represents God, a God-ordained character. Often there are six elements, and then there's like a 
for an interlude, and then the seventh then becomes a bridge to the next song. It's like a repetition of the song, isn't it? A repetition of the song, I'm getting this out. Now, these episodes span between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The sort of thousand years that you see followed at that time between the first and second coming and so all these different episodes are happening at the same time. So you look at, say, chapters 6 and 7, they're all about children. Then chapters 8 to 11 are all about chaos and creation, which is happening at the same time as humanity. And then you've got persecution of believers in chapters 12 to 14, which is happening still at the same time as destruction of the earth in chapters 15 to 16. What John has cleverly done is saying that all these things are happening throughout the span of the church. In every generation of the church, from the time of Jesus' first coming to the time of the second, we've got tyranny happening, chaos happening, destruction of the earth. But what John does in these chapters is try and draw out things, put them together. Furthermore, the different sort of numbers and symbols and colors and animals John uses uh, are that of a symbolic picture. And so you've got numbers. Now, the number seven symbolizes perfection or completion. And so the number six means imperfection or incompletion. It's not quite seven. And so Mark 3 6 6 6. Because it's not seven seven times, not three colors, and the white symbolizes conquest and victory, and black symbolizes death. And you've got different animals that are mentioned. You know, a lion symbolizes nobility, an ox, strength, eagle, speed, and horns, power. There are symbols or messages which are communicating the story. But, you know, if we had time to, to read through chapters 8 and 9, for example, we see that they're all about seven trumpets. Trumpets that herald the judgment of God on the world that is created, the world which is rejected. And yet, despite these signs of God's judgment, nations do not repent. And so, chapter 10 and chapter 14 are getting to the point, make the point that what is needed to get the nations to repent is prophecy, is the Word of God to explain and interpret to humanity that these signs or warnings of God's coming judgment are judgment that will fall on everybody. And this prophecy continues in chapter 11 to 21. We continue in verse 1. Revelation 12. Then there was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship it. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given to the nations. They will trample the holy city for three months. Now, you see, whereby up to this point, uh, the Apostle John has simply been observing the temple. In verse 20, participating in it. He's shown the temple of God and getting something like a very long wheel on and told to go and meet. 
something is God talking about. Well, there are a lot of different ideas that Paul and others were plowing through the many different commentaries on faith. But I think at least we can probably deal out a little sample because the book of Revelation, most scholars think was written around the year 90 AD. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So it seems not that likely that God's referring back to something which hasn't existed for 2,000 years. I think it's more likely what's going on here is that John is talking symbolically not about to some physical earthly temple, but to a spiritual one, the one in heaven. In other words, the, the temple is really a metaphor for God's people, uh, the church, the, the worshippers that he's talking about. So the temple there is symbolic for all those who are God's people throughout the ages in the presence of Jesus. They are the full measure of God's people who are who are sealed and protected for the difficult times that they will experience at the hands of the nations in this They are really symbolic of the world in opposition to God. They're really even in impressive verses to God. The church, that is, all the believers down to the ages. And then you've got everyone else who are in opposition. God is possible in this And what will the, the world, what will the nations do to God's people between the first and second coming of Jesus? Well, those two places that they will trample on God's people for a period of 1,260 days. That is 42 months, that is three and a half years, that is half of seven years. See, if, if seven is a complete period, then three and a half is an incomplete uh, period. A broken period, an interrupted period. Uh, the Bible quotes don't work as long if you just to go down the road, literally, uh, you hit the wrong cemetery. You know, the largest cemetery in Brisbane. If you go around on some of the tombstones, you can see what looks like a collar that could have been broken off. And if you were to look at the ages of the have been tragically symbolized by this broken The nations will oppose God's people, but the time will be cut short. It will not go on forever. Persecution of God's people will be brought to an end. Run its full course, but will eventually stop in its tracks. God will, during this time, still care for his people. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for God's people. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to live. As we know, there have been many martyrs down through the centuries, many who have given their lives. But God's point here is that despite that, the church. Why can't God 
and having endured a period of time, God will bring them to and preserve His people. And while the nations are doing their worst and the spirit of rebellion against God's people, God has two witnesses that are mentioned, two hate men who stand up against this rebellion and prophesy. Verse 3, Revelation 11, verse 3, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and I will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, and they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. I will shut up the heavens, that it will not rain. During the time they have prophesied, I will turn the waters into blood, strike the earth with every kind of plague, often as they want. You can see these two witnesses stand in sacrifice. We're preaching a message of Destroy their opponents, verse 5, even to destroy creation, verse 6. These witnesses have the power to shut up the sky so that it does not rain and to turn water into blood and to strike the world with every kind of faith. And as even the, the commentaries divided on who are these witnesses? Who's John referring to? Many ideas before, but as I was thinking through, I can sort of see why many regard them as standing like Elijah and Moses. Yeah, because they were powerful prophets who contended with the enemies of God as they faced God's people during the period of Moses and in Egypt and throughout Ahab's day during Elijah's ministry. Elijah shut up the heavens so it did not rain for. Moses turned water into blood and said, Yeah, this plague after plague. And Elijah and Moses both testified the word of God and, and stood in the breach between God and his people, and so they were protected during their ministry. Oh, these witnesses do sound a lot like Elijah. Yet, these two witnesses also sound a lot like Zerubbabel and Joshua in the book of Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament, particularly in Zechariah chapter 4. See, these were two men who were during the period after the Israelites returned from the exile out of Babylon. They were there, they stood there as the, the temple, which had been destroyed some seven years before, got rebuilt. And they witnessed to the nations around them. And Joshua oversaw the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. The thing was, this new temple was, was much smaller than the original one that had been built under Solomon's And so, at the opening of this new temple, there were both cheers and tears. Cheers from those just happy to finally have a piece of paper. But tears from the older ones who had seen the man. Solomon, all those years before, 
believed that what they had now, Son, any replacement, Son, any replacement. Day the new temple was dedicated. Remember, Joshua and Caleb and Joshua. And God encouraged the people through the preaching of Zechariah in chapter 4, saying, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by spirit, says the Lord. As Zerubbabel had laid the foundation of this temple, his hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of salvation? Uh, this is not a day to despise small things, Zechariah says to the downcast. You know, the nations around him may despise. What they are doing in the temple they are building. They may have opponents who are trying to destroy them and interrupt their building of the temple. But the temple is going to be built not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. And so the warning of Zechariah is to not despise the day of small things because what they are laying will rise up to one day become a mighty. Revelation 11, because what I think is going on here that we mentioned the two witnesses is that the two witnesses are not so much referring to two individuals, but rather they are representative of all the witnesses of God's people down through the But you see, it has been in every generation, in the Moses, in the Elijah. In the Corinthians, in the Augustine, in the Lutheran, in the in the Calvin, in the Bonhoeffer. In other words, these two witnesses symbolise all those who stand and testify in the face of a world in opposition. They may be despised and attacked and rejected by the world, and yet. God in every generation is never left without his witnesses. And just as the world will never be able to ultimately destroy God's people, they will always have to listen to his witnesses. Now, the period of time the world may appear to have victory over God's people, as we read in verse 7. When they finish their testimony, Peace that rises from the bottomless pit to make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, to the Lord's displeasure. Three and a half days, some of the people's tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the temple. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and exclaim. Now, just as they're doing the days of Lot, the 
between the days of Moses, the first person where God's people were, were persecuted but ultimately triumphed through the power of God. So it would be on the final day. Now, the world's sort of partial victories over God's people will bring them great joy by even seeing congratulatory presents to one another because the witness of God's faithful people down through the centuries has continued to torment all those who stand in opposition to so you see the joy of these people over every Christian failure across the world, in the different standard Christians in the world, one of the many lies leading to us to The world hates these prophets and delights in their downfall. And yet, verse 10 is not the end of the story. Whereas our Lord rose from the dead in Jerusalem, so these two prophets are raised up, verse 11, but after three and a half days, an incomplete period of time, Breath of life from God into them, they stood up on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. They went up to heaven and their enemies lost. You see, the victory of God's people strikes terror in the hearts of all those who oppose God's people. And who would be? With that then comes the judgments of the people. Verse 7. At that hour there was a great earthquake. The tent of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of You see, history is often seen the church persecuted almost to the very edge of its thinking. Think China. Think North Korea. Think Rise from the brink of almost extinction. And every such resurrection strikes terror in the heart of those who thought they could destroy the gospel that have been unbelievable. The oppressed God's people, they do, at least for a time, have done down through the centuries. The opposition is fierce, and the need for supernatural protection for believers is great. The lot of the witnessing church is far, but the eventual triumph is clear. And so, chapter 11 is actually meant to be a, a heartwarming message for those who are God's people, for those who are believers in Christ Jesus. You see, it may appear that the world is winning the fight against us. But this appearance is only temporary. What God needs is he fearlessly proclaims the word of God, which is the power of God. But keep preaching the gospel for it, through it, the weak will overcome the strong. The small will overcome the great. It is not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God, that is, by the preaching of the gospel, that the victory of the world
that picture history. That's how it comes to pass the test with Jesus. You and I in your paper are greatly ridiculed in the media. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.